0: Right, well, what we're going to be looking at this morning is we're, we're continuing our, our study in uh, Galatians, and we'll be reading from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through to 22. If you've got one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 1170. It's Galatians chapter 3, and reading verses 15 through to 22, and I think the, the passage will come up on screen as well the law and the promise. It reads, Brothers and sisters, let me take an example from everyday life. Just as no one can set aside or add to a human covenant that has been duly established, so it is in this case. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but unto your seed meaning one person, who is Christ. What I mean is this. The law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. For if the inheritance depends on the law, then it is no longer dependent on the promise. But God in his grace gave it to Abraham through a promise. Why then was the law given at all? It was added because of transgressions, until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law, therefore, opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Amen. Well, as I said, this is a continuation of a a series that we've been looking at in the book, or the letter, rather, of Galatians. And... uh, in some ways, I think Chuck, in fact we previously spoke on the, the first part of chapter three before. I think he did anyway. anyway, Paul's continuing his argument, and the situation is in Galatia is that this church that he established, that he planted in a sense, has been infiltrated by a, a group of false teachers who have come in behind them. But the problem is these uh, young Christians, these Galatians, have been spellbound in a sense by these teachers. And what they've done is they've come in, but they've they've brought additions, if you like, amendments to the gospel. And when you begin to tamper or tinker with the person and the works of Christ, then it's no longer the gospel. So these characters have made amendments, additions to the gospel. And the law and the traditions of the Mosaic law has been presented to them as if almost it's it's a... That's a nice tune to go with an inspirational thought, isn't it? (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) It's been presented to them as if it's a a new and indeed a better revelation than that which Paul brought to them originally. And they've been suckered by it to the extent that they now think that they have surpassed Paul in knowledge and in understanding. They've been conned into thinking that, that what that what brought Paul brought to them was incomplete. It was insufficient even. But in truth, they've been sold a dud. It's, you know, it's a bit like the story of the, you know, the emperor's new clothes. You know, it was the story of these two con artists who came into the kingdom and uh, and they milked the emperor's vanity for all it was worth. They told them that they prepared the finest of clothes from a fabric, but only the, the cleverest and the wisest of people could see. And as you know the story, there was actually nothing there. But not wishing it to appear foolish, the emperor bought into it and convinced himself that he could see these clothes and paraded himself in public. But it took the simple honesty of a small boy to say that he doesn't have any clothes on, <laughs> to bust the bubble. And he was ashamed for his folly. You know, and Paul's about to do the same here as well. He's about, in a sense, to bust their bubble. You know, it's interesting that these false teachers, they always came after Paul, not before him. It was always after. And I think it's because they had an inkling of that Paul was a man to be reckoned with. You know, unlike these Galatians, because when you think about it, they really had no comprehension of who Paul was, who he was, where he came from, where he'd been in life. He was formerly a Jew amongst Jews. He was of the highest order and caliber in terms of his zeal for the law, for traditions, the rich heritage of his ethnicity. He was indeed a Jew among Jews. And he tells himself that he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of his contemporaries. That he sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was like the the most respected and prodigious Pharisee teacher of all time. Paul was such a zealot of Judaism that he would have put these characters to shame. So, where these Galatians are now going, Paul has already been there. He knows the lay of the land. He's walked it a thousand times before. He knows every undulation, every crevice, every rock, every shrub and root of the law. He knows now that, in the light of the revelation that was given to him by Christ, that this land, so to speak, has its limitations and in fact in some sense it's almost a bit like a graveyard it's a place where you come to visit where you come through it's a place to commiserate to grieve to mourn but it's not a place to make your home because there is a better land ahead you know it's a bit like these Galatians have landed on the Go To jail square on Monopoly but yet it's been sold to them as Park Lane you know and on this golden cage, it, it doesn't have a get of jail card. So, to help them to realize the, the fallacy of their thinking, he uses a very simple illustration, one that they can, they can grasp so easily. A covenant, an agreement, a contract, even, or even in better terms, uh, a last will and testament. It's binding. When both parties agree to something, it's binding. And this would have been familiar to the Galatians. You know, in commonplace and practice throughout the ancient world, is intrinsic to personal life, social life, community life, and international affairs. They would have understood this illustration easily. So in one sense, these Galatians therefore and therefore need to be taken back to the start. Yes, there was life before the law of Moses. In fact, their salvation was founded upon a covenant that God established already, in and through Himself, with the man Abraham. But before I go on, I'd like to draw up my uh, my first sign. You know, I think this in part was inspired by my good friend Gordon Merchant. I think he's here this morning, isn't he? You know, I don't know if you know this, but he's teaching me to drive. And I was thinking, oh, I can see a theme here happening, uh, and I better get these right. But so, my my first, my first road sign. Give way. You know, I'm adapting the, the interpretation a little bit. But give way. You know, before I go, anyth- more, go further into the text, I just want to observe something about Paul at this point. And it's the way that he, he approaches the Galatians now. You know, he now deals with them in a sense that they're like little children. Because, in a way, that's what they are. You know what? such times, he scolds them as appropriate, but he's also gentle with them. You notice that he calls them brothers and sisters. Let me give you an everyday illustration. Do you hear the softness in his voice? Paul sees a folly, but he will now show them the error of their thinking by a simple illustration that will expose the foolishness of the false teaching they've been so quick to buy into. You know, and I hope and I think that in reading this far into the the letter, the Galatians themselves would be humble enough to listen. And surely by the witness of the Spirit and the testimony of Paul delivered in kindness and humility. Brothers and sisters, there it is. It's that softness and kindness. It's appealed to that which unites them, the body and the blood of Christ. Listen to reason, dear brethren. Like a good shepherd, he doesn't thrash him with a thorn branch, but gently herds him back to greener pastures. You know, Paul at times has had an unfair reputation, if you like. People often portray him as some kind of monstrous, overbearing, opinionated, socially awkward pastor. The pink kind of person you would least likely to call to lead a church or appoint to oversee a church. But here is a glimpse into the tender-hearted Paul who cares deeply for these people. And he will suffer. He will suffer injury to his pride, to his ego, to his reputation even, to bring these wandering sheep back. And he draws them a simple illustration that we will readily understand. You know, it's there between the lines of Scripture. So how do we bear one another Sometimes there is a need for rebuke, sometimes even public rebuke, as we read before in chapter 2 when uh, Paul confronted Peter. But more often than not, our response should be one of gentleness, with love. And then even if that means it might cost us our ego at times, or even our determination to be proved right, for the sake of Christ, and I mean that for the sake of Christ and his household, house I think I've got somebody else's teeth in this morning. (laughs) And for his household, we should endeavour to live at peace with one another. You know, we think that when we've incurred some kind of injury by some party or another, always it tends to be our first instinct is to lash out. But you know who it is that suffers more? It is Jesus. It's Christ. You know, when we're at odds with one another, and remember that we're all under his roof, he's the one that gets caught in the middle. He's the one that gets the, the slap round the face or gets kicked in the shins when we get into a scaffold with one another. We're called to live at peace with one another, but even more so with the rest of the Good Shepherd's flock. If you're at odds with a brother or sister, do your utmost to be put right with them. And it might require you to do something a bit Christ-like, funny enough. <laughs> Maybe you should take counsel with the head of the Father's house. And before you do anything else, take it before Christ. And I'm sure, and I can assure you, he will show you a better way. Ask him to help you take the first course. Don't wait in a like a standoff position. You know, in a sense, this might seem like a slight deviation from the text, but I think it's important to read as much the spirit of the text as it is the words that are in it. So, just as the the sign says, be courteous to one another, build, encourage, and correct one another in love. I want to move on now and start getting into the rest of the, the passage, and I want to look at verse 16. And that allusion to that idea of a of a covenant, a human covenant. Or will, as it's now attributed to the covenant that was established between God and Abraham. In verse 16 again it reads, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. My next uh, road sign reads, Right of way. <laughs> I'm getting good at this. The way of faith has always had the right of way. You know, and here Paul draws and again into these passages the colossal figure of Abraham, the father indeed of a nation. You know, the very building blocks which the Israelite nation was founded upon. But here is the interesting thing that Abraham preceded the law. Well, how could that be? The covenant that was established between God and Abraham was binding. And therefore, how was righteousness then credited to Abraham? Well, you will read it in Genesis 15 verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it him as righteousness. It was because of his faith. Because he believed God. Not in, a, in an intellectual assent. He really trusted God. And God saw that and credited it to him as being righteous. Simple as that. There's no, there was no covenant in the sense of the law. The, it was a promise by God Himself to Abraham based on faith. There were no lawful preconditions or traditions or observances or ceremonial acts. The condition was that Abraham believed. You know, and what a relief that is. You know, because when you consider the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, none of them were an example of moral decency. None of them were. Because they all had their flaws. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's interesting when you consider that Paul takes the word seed and applies it in a singular term as opposed to a plural And as Paul says himself, the seed of Abraham, as far as Paul is concerned, is a direct reference to the person and the coming of Christ. And indeed, when you consider as well the genealogy of Jesus, it comes by way of one named individual after another. You know, when you think about Abraham's seed, when you think about um, his firstborn Ishmael, the promise was not to him. When you think of Isaac's sons, the promise was not accorded to Esau, but to Isaac. The history of the patriarchs is evidence of this. And what then of the 12, 13 tribes of Israel? Well, when the fall came and the exile came, practically 12 to 13 of them disappeared into the non existence, leaving only Judah, and in whom only a remnant then survived. Till at last it came by way of faith to a young girl called Mary. Highly favoured by God. Why? What was her response at the announcement of the angel? I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Faith was in a sense the golden thread. It travelled through the passage of time. Even those born out with the Israelite community were drawn into the seed of Abraham. Remember Rahab, the prostitute who believed that God could do what he was going to do and give Jericho over to the Israelites. Ruth, who believed on the God of Naomi. Both before and after the law, these ancestors, if you like, of Christ, were credited as righteous. Not because of their strict observance of the law, but by faith because they believed upon the promise of God. I know and they like all the rest of us had fallen short of the glory of God but it was the fact that they trusted upon God. They looked forward to the day of the Messiah the holy one who would save his people from their sins they put their trust in him. They rested upon the promises that was made to them by God himself that set them apart. If this was the will the covenant that was duly established by God then, then just as a human covenant cannot be revoked, so it is with God even more so. These additions that are being proposed by these false teachers are being revealed for what they are. Redundant. A false foundation. The law and all its various observations that were introduced 430 years later does not add or supersede, amend or annul what God has already set in place. It's irrevocable. And what does this mean for us? Well, it means that God is not some kind of arbitrary, random despot, arbitrary ruler. From the dawn of mankind, He is working his purposes out to redeem us, to save us from sin. It was always God who was the first mover in bringing us closer to Himself. He is trustworthy and he is committed to undoing the wickedness of man and the works of the evil one. And he has never faltered, and he never will fail in that. You know, we can't always discern his ways, but we can be confident of one thing, that we can testify with Scripture that all things work for the good of those who love the Lord. So by faith, we can then be confident of our seat at his table, By faith we can be secure that we will sit with Abraham. We will sit with Isaac, with Jacob, with Rahab, with David. And all those who look forward to the coming of Christ. And indeed those who have gone before us. And who look back to the consummation. Consummation. I I really have got Paul Stephen I think. The consummation of God's promise revealed in a person of his son by whom all nations will be blessed. You know, the testimony of Scripture is clear. By faith alone, not by works, but by faith. You know, it's so important that we grasp this, and I know in some sense there's been a repetition over the weeks, but I don't make any apology for that. To trust in Christ is to have faith in Christ, is to put it all in the black, is to have no plan B. As far as being made right with God, I will not strive to take things into my own hands. I would not dare to make an appeal to any good thing that I have done as a means of approval from God. You know, there is nothing that I can do to make God love me more. Nothing indeed. In fact, it could well be the opposite. You know, I remember listening to a a testimony from a fellow called Chuck Smith. Not our Chuck, a a, a different Chuck. He was uh, formerly a senior pastor of um, Costa Mesa Church in California. Sadly, he's passed away, but he shared this story. And, you know, he was brought up through the Pentecostal church. And as a young Pentecostal, he would often attend what they called tarrying meetings, where they were tarrying, waiting upon the blessing of the Holy Spirit. And every year they would sign this pledge that they would not drink, they would not smoke cigarettes, they would go to theatres and such and such and such. But when he went to these meetings, and then when it was as encouraging as it was, there was often a, a sense whereby, I don't even know if people were conscious of it, but there seemed to be a common theme where people were laying things down and therefore they'd something in return. And this frustrated him because he would often hear people come to the front and say how they gave up their cigarettes and then suddenly the Holy Spirit came upon them. Or somebody gave up the whiskey bottle and the Holy Spirit came upon them. You know, and this frustrated him because he didn't smoke (laughs) and he didn't drink. So in one sense, (laughs) what do I do? And he began to pray about this. And he realized that something, that he was putting his confidence and his own righteousness before God. As a means of qualification for the Holy Spirit. In one sense he wasn't putting any wrong thing, wrongful thing down. But he was holding on to something that he thought would make him appeasing to God. Well he tells that. He recognized this. And he took it before God. And he said God I'm so sorry. I've tried to make myself. I've almost, in a sense, I've tried to improve upon what your son has done. I've tried to make my efforts count for something. And he sort of tossed them aside and said, Lord, based upon my faith in Christ, Lord, I ask that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. And you know what? God credited it to him as righteousness. And he was filled. He was immediately adopted into the seed of Abraham. You know, when I consider my own kids, Samuel, Isaac, and Kezia, you know, there's nothing that they can do or undo to make me love them to make me love them any more or any less. And you know why? It's because... Sounds very scientific now. They have my DNA. <laughs> They're a part of me. They're an extension of me in a sense. And so we too, by the gift of faith, of faith in Christ, we're adopted. We're grafted in, reckoned as being Righteous. Because God recognises the indwelling presence of his Son in us. That's what it is to have faith. Paul has proved his point. And when I read from verse 19, you could almost imagine the situation wherever these Galatians were meeting. As they pour over this letter, you can imagine Paul almost imitating these false teachers. And all the poor souls in Galatia who might well have been questioned the discomfort that they've just undergone of receiving circumcision? I can almost imagine these teachers backing out of the door as the Galatians say, well then, why, wh- what purpose for the law then? Why was it given? To what end was it? If it's redundant, why was it ever given in the first place? My next sign, I don't know if you recognize this road sign. Can anybody here put their hand up and tell me what it means? Yes, that's right. You're in danger of grounding. If you follow this route, you're going to get grounded. Uh, basically, your car's going to get stuck. I mean, in one sense, the, the, the symbol, the, the sign doesn't do feel justice to it. You will get stuck if you pursue this route. <coughs> You know, I spoke on this a couple of weeks ago. The law was given to reveal the true nature of our predicament. As I said at the beginning, that the law was a place where we must all pass through. But it's not a place to make our home. You know, in the remaining verses that Paul writes, one commentator conceded that this was probably the most difficult passage in all of Paul's writings. So difficult that there are almost 300 different interpretations of it but we have a clue. And that is, if we bear in mind the consistency of Paul's argument, that the way of grace and faith is superior to the way of law, it provides a good signpost. It points us towards the gist of what Paul is saying. He says it was added because of transgressions. The law was given to define sin, so we might readily recognize it in ourselves. You know, William Barclay said, he almost, he described it like this. The law is like a doctor who only specializes in diagnosis. He's powerless to cure the condition. He is powerless to save us from the crippling symptoms of sin and its consequent death. It's his job to be the bearer of bad news for everyone who comes through his door But as Paul says, he is not opposed to the promise of God, as Paul says in verse 21. Rather, the law encourages us, exhorts us to find treatment across the hall. If you want to live, then you need to put your confidence in Jesus. He's the great physician, He's the only one who can save you. If you stay in the treatment room of the law, then you're cursed. It says in Deuteronomy 27, verse 26, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. All of it. All of it. You know, I had a very brief brush with this idea. You know, in a sense, when God was awakening me to my my sinfulness, I imagined that I could do something about it. I could change. If I just turned my worldview upside down, chose an ideal and set my life to live according to it, everything would be wonderful. You know, I got this idea from Greco-Roman philosophies in my children's encyclopedia. (laughs) But I realized it was a thing of dust and ashes. I couldn't live even according to my own meager standard. If I couldn't do that, how on earth could I live according to God's standard? I needed a covenant of grace the law showed me I needed Jesus and I'm so thankful for his diagnosis he pointed me to life in Jesus and what did Jesus say himself he who has been forgiven much loves much in return have we traveled far enough than the road of works to be convinced of our dependence of our desperate need of Jesus You know, I don't know the percentage or the proportion of people that make the transition from diagnosis to treatment. But I suspect there are a few corpses in the law's treatment room. In fact, I suspect there's more than a few. There are folk who are just through tenacious pig-headedness, blind arrogance, pride, false belief, self-righteousness, and perhaps even fear, have refused to leave the law's treatment room. Convinced that law can somehow prescribe an observance, some diet, something, anything that they can do in themselves to make a cure for a terminal condition. The question comes back to us then. What about you? Are you convinced by faith in Jesus alone that you can be saved? Made right with God? Or is there still some small thing that you're holding on to? Clinging to that's holding you under law? Holding you under the conviction that it all depends on what I can do? I encourage you to lay it down. Because you have nothing to lose. Because if that's where you are, then you're already dead in your sin. But by faith, you have everything to gain. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Respond in faith. And just by one of an illustration, just to encourage you in this, I don't know if you've ever done this. I don't do it now. I don't think I do it. But I used to do this all the time. You know, when I was walking down Socky Hall Street or Buchanan Street or Gyle Street or one of the main thoroughfares in in Glasgow. If I realised that I was walking in the wrong direction, do you know what I would do? Rather than just turn around, which would have been the most simple and clearest thing to do, I would look at my watch. Almost to give myself reason and purpose. Oh, I'm late for an appointment. I'm not going to make it. I just have to go back. I was thinking for some reason that the whole world was looking at me. Or I would carry on until I came to a convenient crossing where I could go across the road and double back on the other side of the street. Could I just ask you to confess a moment if you've ever done that? Oh, that makes me feel so much better. <laughs> it's silly, isn't it? It's so silly. But in such a silly thing like that, we put ourselves through so much inconvenience and grief. Well, I'm going to ask you to do something just now. Could you stand with me? I'm going to ask you that to take that opportunity to turn around, to take the way of faith, and not by anything that you might have, And all the world isn't looking upon you. And even if they are, what does it matter? What does it compare to the prizes that comes by way of faith in Christ? Maybe your faith has been built on a false premise. Maybe you had the appearance of being a Christian. But in your heart of hearts, you know know that it wasn't founded on Christ. Or maybe you've had a master plan. You were relying on your your good works, your lifestyle, your track record as a good person. Or maybe you were just relying on plain luck. That it was going to get you into some kind of nirvana or some place of rest. Listen to the Spirit. And if you are in a place like that, Could I just ask you to raise your hand? I'm going to pray. Father, Lord God, you are so good to us. And Lord, we, times we Take it for granted. Lord, that you at times, Lord, have, you've sheltered us from the the depth, Lord, our depravity, but Lord, at times you give us a a glimpse into it. And Lord, and how it's a horrible thing to you. So much so, Lord, that your son became a curse for us. He became a curse for us, Lord, that we wouldn't be cursed. He took on the full weight and the penalty of sin of everything. Lord, if there be anything in us, Lord, that we are holding up before you as some kind of trophy, as some kind of anything, Lord, that qualifies us for your grace, Lord, then, Lord, we put it down. We put it down, Lord. And Lord, we ask that but by faith, faith in what Jesus has done, what he has done alone, Lord, we surrender. And Lord, we ask that you would graft us, affirm us, Lord, that we are indeed sons and daughters of Abraham. And that, Lord, we will sit at your seat. We will sit at your table. By faith.